Hello and welcome to the September 15th, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a quick summary of what's new in the journal. I hope that our listeners, their families, and their colleagues are staying well as the pandemic continues and we all transition to a new season. The presence of SARS-CoV-2 in feces has raised the possibility of viral transmission via the fecal-oral route. And the first study I'll mention shed some light on how that might occur. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong investigated whether SARS-CoV-2 transmission via fecal aerosols in a building drainage pipe system may have been the cause of COVID-19 infection in a cluster of three families living in a high-rise apartment building in Gangzhou, China. The team studied throat swaps from infected patients, other building residents, and building staff 237 surface and air samples from 11 of the 83 apartments in the building, public areas and building drainage systems, and tracer gas released into bathrooms as a surrogate for virus-laden aerosols in the drainage system. Based on their circumstantial evidence, the researchers concluded that the outbreak within the building may have been caused by fecal aerosol transmission that occurred after toilet flushing by infected patients. The researchers suggest ways to prevent such transmission, such as adequate hygiene and sanitary drainage systems and bathroom ventilation and hygiene. Dr. Michael Gormley, an engineer from Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh and author of an accompanying editorial, discusses the findings and why wastewater systems, particularly those in high-rise buildings, deserve closer investigation as a reservoir for harmful pathogens. It appears that COVID-19 infection fatality ratios vary substantially by age, race, ethnicity, and sex. Risk for death is significantly higher among patients who are older or those who are non-white. However, the absence of reliable estimates of infection rates at the population level have made it difficult to calculate reliable estimates of infection fatality rates. A brief research report published on September 2nd used population-level data from Indiana to obtain better estimates than have been available to date. Current mortality rates for COVID-19 are calculated from confirmed cases, which can overestimate infection fatality rate because many individuals who are infected may have no or mild symptoms and never get tested, so their infections remain uncounted. To calculate the true infection fatality rate among the community-dwelling population, researchers from Indiana University combined prevalence estimates from a statewide random sample with Indiana vital statistics data of confirmed COVID-19 deaths for all state residents aged 12 or older. They excluded incarcerated persons and nursing home residents from the random sample. So these infection fatality rates apply to persons older than 12 living in the community. Participants were tested April 25th to April 29th, 2020 for active viral infection and SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, which would indicate prior infection, and demographic information was collected. The researchers found that the overall infection fatality rate was 0.26%. Persons younger than 40 years had an infection fatality rate of 0.01%, and those aged 60 or older had an infection fatality rate of 1.71%. 
Indiana's infection fatality rate for persons older than 60 years and not living in an institutional setting was found to be approximately two and a half times greater than the estimated infection fatality rate for seasonal influenza. With regard to race, whites had an infection fatality rate of 0.18% and non-whites a rate of 0.59%. The researchers note that the infection fatality rate for non-whites is more than three times that for whites, despite COVID-19 decedents in the non-white group being 5.6 years younger on average. These data from Indiana are an important step in the right direction. Better data on population level rates of infection in other regions will help to further refine our understanding of SARS-CoV-2 infection fatality rates. COVID-19 vaccine development is proceeding at an unprecedented pace. Once available, it will be important to maximize vaccine uptake and coverage. The next article reports a survey of intent to be vaccinated against COVID-19 among a representative sample of adults in the United States. Intent to be vaccinated against COVID-19 was measured with the question, when a vaccine for the coronavirus becomes available, will you get vaccinated? Response options were yes, no, and not sure. Participants who responded no or not sure were asked to provide a reason. Overall, 57.6% of participants intended to be vaccinated. 31.6% were unsure, and 10.8% did not intend to be vaccinated. Factors independently associated with vaccine hesitancy included younger age, black race, lower educational attainment, and not having received the influenza vaccine in the prior year. Reasons for vaccine hesitancy included vaccine-specific concerns, a need for more information, anti-vaccine attitudes or beliefs, and a lack of trust. These findings emphasize that targeted and multi-pronged efforts will be needed to increase acceptance of COVID-19 vaccine when one becomes available. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Allison Gutenheim from the University of Pennsylvania discusses the findings and explains that although the tendency is to focus on those who are hesitant to receive a vaccination, why she believes that closing the intention to behavior gap for most U.S. residents who appear willing to get a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine is likely to have the greatest payoff for vaccine coverage, disease mitigation, and population health. Although HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis is highly effective, is recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and is a key component of the federal government's Ending the HIV Epidemic Plan, only a fraction of persons who can benefit from PrEP receive it. Next is a retrospective cohort study that found that cost may be a key factor in preventing more widespread use of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. National expenditures for PrEP increased nearly 20-fold from $114 million in 2014 to $2.08 billion in 2018. In 2018, 204,270 patients used PrEP, representing only 18% of those with an indication for it. Researchers from the CDC use data from a large national pharmacy database to estimate out-of-pocket and third-party payments for PrEP. They found that the cost increased on average of 5% each year between 2014 and 2018, from $1,350 to $1,638 for a one-month supply. At least $2 billion was spent on PrEP medication costs in the U.S. in 2018, and this accounted for PrEP coverage of only 18% of persons with an indication for PrEP. 
Expanding PrEP use is needed to reach the ending the HIV epidemic goal of 50% of persons with an indication for PrEP. According to the study authors, the overall healthcare cost of PrEP will likely increase as more persons gain access to and continue to use PrEP. Action to lower PrEP costs can prevent coverage denials, eliminate prior authorizations, and increase access. In an accompanying editorial, Drs. Rochelle Walensky and Kevin Ard from Massachusetts General Hospital write, quote, the Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative aims to reduce HIV infections by 50% in five years, but this public health effort must start by releasing the cost noose that is strangling its own success. Pre-exposure prophylaxis is a potent tool to prevent HIV infection, but only if we, patients, the public, and insurers alike, can afford it, end quote. Hereditary hemorrhagic telectangentasia is a rare and underdiagnosed bleeding disorder that results in chronic bleeding, acute hemorrhage, and complications from shunting through vascular malformations, characteristics of the disease. Making the diagnosis enables appropriate screening and preventive treatment to be undertaken in a patient and their affected family members. The second international guidelines for the diagnosis and management of this condition were published online first in Annals on September 8th and will serve as a useful and authoritative resource for clinicians who encounter patients with this disease. The next article reports a trial that showed that prophylactic treatment with direct-acting antivirals prevented chronic hepatitis C virus infection in 10 patients receiving kidneys from hepatitis C virus-positive deceased donors. This approach has potential to help shorten waiting times on the organ waitlist. Many kidneys from deceased donors with hepatitis C infection are discarded annually because of the limited number of HCV-infected transplant candidates. An innovative strategy of transplanting kidneys from HCV-positive donors to HCV-negative recipients by using direct-acting antivirals has shown early success, but the optimal timing and duration of therapy remain unclear. In this clinical trial, researchers from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine investigated outcomes with four-week prophylaxis with the pangenotypic regimen of glucapavir and piprentesavir. Eligible candidates were HCV antibody and RNA negative, were on the deceased donor kidney transplant wait list, and did not have HIV or hepatitis B infection or liver disease. Participants received one dose before organ perfusion, then one dose daily for four weeks. Hepatitis C virus RNA was measured on post-operative days one and four, prophylaxis weeks one, two, and four, and post-prophylaxis follow-up weeks one, four, eight, and 12. The researchers found that in all 10 cases where a patient received a kidney from a hepatitis C virus positive donor, four-week direct-acting antiviral prophylaxis prevented hepatitis C virus infection without treatment-related adverse events or substantial liver enzyme abnormalities. Also on September 8th, Annals published a case report describing a patient with a novel Langerhans-related histiocytosis whose clinical histopathologic and genetic features differ from those in any other histocytic disorder. This novel Langerhans-related histiocytosis was identified in a 43-year-old patient with debilitating knee pain and inflammation that did not respond to treatment. Her other joints were involved as well, and multiple nodular skin lesions were present on her face, trunk, and limbs. Go to Avils.org to read the full report and learn how the patient's physicians made the diagnosis and arrived at an effective treatment plan.
September 8th also brought a very thought-provoking commentary on patient-clinician communication. Medical procedures encompass a set of ordered actions, each requiring unique knowledge and skills aimed at diagnosing, prognosticating, or treating illness. A medical procedure generally brings to mind invasive technical interventions. The authors of this commentary propose that clinician-patient communication, particularly when focused on a specific task such as taking a medical history, delivering bad news, or discussing goals of care, also contains elements similar to a technical procedure. They argue that considering communication interactions through a procedural lens may improve the specificity, intention, and impact of these important interactions. On September 10th, coincident with this presentation at the American Heart Association Hypertension Scientific Sessions, Annals published a systematic review suggesting that contrary to concern that orthostatic hypotension is a complication of intensive antihypertensive therapy, it actually lowers the risk for orthostatic hypertension. When the researchers examined individual participant data from trials, they found that lower blood pressure targets reduce the risk of orthostatic hypotension, regardless of age, standing hypotension status, or orthostatic hypotension prior to treatment. Estimating deaths from COVID-19 based on death certificate data significantly underestimates the true mortality rate of the pandemic. Authors of the next article describe how methods used to assess death tolls from other pandemics and natural disasters can be used to provide a more accurate picture of COVID-19 death rates by measuring direct, indirect, and excess deaths from COVID-19. Dr. Julie Gerberding, author of an accompanying editorial, agrees that reliable and timely information about both direct and indirect mortality attributable to the COVID-19 pandemic is essential. The most accurate data to assess mortality in the United States from any cause are derived from the National Vital Statistics System. Seeing as these data are crucial to informing health and emergency preparedness systems in the U.S., Dr. Gerberding believes they are worth greater investment. Despite its large disease burden, no approved disease-modifying drugs currently are available to treat osteoarthritis. Common treatments such as acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have only mild to moderate effects on symptoms and are associated with adverse events. As such, an urgent need exists for safer and more effective drugs to treat osteoarthritis. It is hypothesized that curcuma longa, an extract of turmeric, could be an effective therapy. Researchers from the University of Tasmania in Australia randomly assigned 70 participants with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis and ultrasound evidence of effusion to receive either two capsules per day of curcuma longa or placebo for 12 weeks to determine the efficacy of reducing knee symptoms and joint swelling. Changes in pain and knee effusion synovitis volume were assessed by standardized questionnaires and MRI respectively over the 12 weeks. The researchers also looked for changes in cartilage composition, pain medication usage, quality of life, physical performance measures, and adverse events. After 12 weeks, they found that patients taking the turmeric supplements reported modestly less pain than those in the placebo group with no adverse events. But there were also no differences in swelling or other structural aspects of knee osteoarthritis between the groups. The researchers suggest that multicenter trials with larger sample sizes and longer duration of follow-up are needed to assess the clinical significance of their findings.
Next is a new policy paper from the American College of Physicians focused on combating the rising cost of prescription drugs. The new paper is the third installment of a series of ACP policy papers aimed at making prescription drugs more affordable. This new paper follows the previously published papers that focused on pharmacy benefit managers and prescription drug costs within public health plans. Finally, researchers from Tokyo, Japan, described three cases where patients with bothersome symptoms of polymyalgia rheumatica did not achieve pain or stiffness relief after months of non-steroidal inflammatory drugs or steroid treatment. The patients also had type 2 diabetes and poorly controlled glucose levels. Before treating any of the patients with a glucocorticoid, the physicians adjusted the patient's diabetes regimens. To their surprise, the patient's symptoms of polymyalgia rheumatica improved rapidly and dramatically enough that no further treatment was needed. According to the authors, these findings suggest that a randomized controlled trial of tight glycemic control to treat polymyalgia rheumatica is indicated. Also new are on being a doctor essay, a graphic medicine article, an Annals Consult Guys episode on atrial fibrillation, and an Annals on Call podcast episode on assessing renal damage with readily available tests. This week also brings the latest annals for hospitalist alerts. In addition to key points from recent articles of particular relevance to hospital medicine, there's a commentary on novel therapies for heart failure. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I encourage you to go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted and browse previous articles that you may have missed. Stay well and please return in about two weeks for the next podcast. In the meantime, wear your mask, wash your hands, socially distance, and enjoy the change of season if you're listening from a place where the seasons change. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.